You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 32, Sleep. People spend about a third of their lives sleeping. Given how much time we spend asleep, it's surprising how many questions about it are still unanswered. Today, we're going to talk about how sleep relates to both the mind and the brain. Yeah, the sleep's got to be good for something, right? It, it seems like being unconscious and vulnerable to predators all night long, it would make any species, it would put them in a lot of trouble, you know? Yeah, and dreaming probably has some kind of function as well. Yes, yes. Dreaming is a very complicated subject, and it certainly has something to do with sleep. Uh, there's a lot to that, so I think that one deserves its own episode. I agree. Uh, it's one of the topics that my students are really interested in. It's sleep and dreaming, and I could spend hours talking on both. So why don't we dedicate a whole separate episode to dreaming? We will. Okay. Today, we'll, though, we're going to focus on sleep. So sleep has two phases. The first is called rapid eye movement sleep, or as it's commonly known, REM sleep. And you can tell when somebody's in REM sleep because you can see their eyes moving uh, beneath their eyelids. Yeah. And then there's the other kind of sleep is non-REM sleep. Let's just clarify for our listeners that REM sleep has nothing to do with the band REM, although <laughs> arguably... <laughs> <laughs> it is scientifically proven that if you're listening to REM when you go to sleep, you'll have more REM sleep. Oh, my God. Don't listen to Jim. That's fake, fake, fake. <laughs> so REM and non-REM, right? So they must have had a lot of fun making those names up. Oh, yeah. We'd love to be on, in on that brainstorming session. What are we going to call this one? Anyway, REM sleep is actually the lighter form of sleep. Uh, your brain is in a state that's much closer to your waking state. And the non-REM sleep is more of a deep sleep. It's also called slow wave sleep. Uh, when you measure brain waves, they're slower. Uh, and in one night, we cycle through these um, in various stages. So we start off in a very light sleep uh, called stage one, and then we go into progressively deeper stages of non-REM, but then we cycle back uh, up into REM sleep, and then we go back down into the various stages of non-REM sleep, and each cycle takes about 60 minutes. And there's a little bit more REM sleep toward the end of the evening uh, or around the first thing in the morning. Right. So that's why, you know, when people wake up in the morning, sometimes they're they're waking up to sort of a, the the memory of a dream, right? So it's kind of better to wake up during REM sleep because you're already in, I guess, a, a lighter stage of sleep as opposed to being woken up during deep sleep. Right, right. So you usually, you'll usually naturally wake up. If you naturally wake up, you're more likely to do it out of REM sleep. And if you got an alarm, you might get woken up in non-REM sleep. Uh, and when you sometimes when you wake up, you feel really groggy and you can't you could barely function and talk. It takes you a while to get out of it. It's because you were awakened, usually unnaturally, um, in non-REM sleep. Now, sleep is something that many animals have, right? Is It's almost a universal in the animal kingdom, right? That's right. All animals, except for some extremely simple ones, do experience sleep. But there's a huge variety as to how many hours they actually spend sleeping in a given 24-hour period. So, for example, here's a fun fact for you. Did you know that donkeys only sleep five hours in a 24-hour day? And That's why they're so productive. <laughs> those, those donkeys, <laughs> they're getting stuff done. Think of all the podcasts they could make. <laughs> and do, I don't know if you know this, Jim. Do you know which animal uh, sleeps the most? Oh, yes. I believe it's the pothead. <laughs> 
wrong. Uh, wrong it sounds okay. like that. It's opossums. So they sleep about 19 hours uh, in a 24-hour period. Uh, I think some of our listeners might say cats, right? If you have a, if you're a cat owner, you you are very well aware that cats seem to spend a lot of time sleeping. But cats sleep a little bit under 18 hours in a 24-hour period. Uh, importantly, uh, one distinguishing piece of information is that only birds and mammals experience REM sleep, but it appears that they've evolved this function somewhat separately. What, what does that mean? Well, when you think about in the process of evolution, when two different species or groups of species share some, share some kind of functionality, sometimes it's because they actually shared a common ancestor that also had that functionality. But in other times, they each evolved them separately. And this is something known as convergent evolution. Oh, right. Okay. So like a whale has sort of fingers, just like mm. a person, because our common ancestor had those bones. But mm -hmm. like, um, would a bird's and a bat's wings be example of convergent? Exactly. Because they're, they're so different, but they serve the same function? That's right. So birds and bats have very different kinds of wings um, because they've evolved them separately, right? So bats hmm. have all that webbing, right? Versus birds have feathers. So that, so if it's convergent evolution, that means that birds and mammals both experience REM sleep, but their common ancestor didn't. Right. And this strongly suggests that there is a really good reason for REM sleep to exist. That is, it's very unlikely to be a byproduct of other adaptations. And in fact, um, scientists currently believe that one of sleep's functions, and I want to emphasize that this is still up for debate, and um, there's a lot of hotly debated information out there as to what exactly the benefit of sleep is. But one of them is that it's about reinforcing memories. Yes. So non-REM sleep helps you reinforce knowledge types of memories. So that the REM and the non-REM sleep, they reinforce different kinds of memories. So things like episodes in your life and facts, uh, beliefs, those kind of things, your non-REM sleep uh, focuses on that. And then the REM sleep helps encode what we call procedural memories, which are memories of things that you can do like riding a bike or doing math, uh, they're procedures. And as you experience things, memories of them are kept in your short-term memory while you're awake. And then during sleep, some of those memories get transferred over to long-term memory with different kinds of memories uh, getting transferred during different stages of sleep. That's right. And uh, there's a really, really cool experiment that scientists have done where they've had um, rats running in a maze uh, during the daytime. And while they're running through the maze, they're listening to the cells firing in their cortex. And then what they did was also listen to those same cell circuits while the rats were asleep. And what they found was that certain circuits that had were not firing in synchrony or were not um, connected in any way at all became connected uh, during the sleep. And what the scientists believe is that, in fact, this is like they, well, their interpretation is this is the evidence that the rats were kind of running the maze in their sleep, right? So... If you've ever had um, uh, a night's sleep after doing some highly rote task, and you know when I pull my students when I deliver this lecture, like if they're working as baristas or they're in the service industry, sometimes they'll say they have dreams where they're sleeping and they're uh, engaging in these kinds of tasks. And it's one interpretation of this or one thought is that this is the brain's way of kind of tamping in uh, the information from the daytime to kind of ensure that the person is doing this more efficiently during the waking time. And so um, at the brain level, the what's happening is that REM sleep seems to be strengthening the connections between neurons. And there's evidence now that says that non-REM sleep actually removes connections and neurons. 
it removes it? Why would it remove neurons? Well, Isn't that what like getting drunk does? <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, one one yeah, one interpretation of that. But uh, in fact, your brain has many, many, many neurons. Crazy number of neurons. Crazy, crazy neurons. Yeah, billions of neurons and trillions of synaptic connections. And part of learning and understanding the world we live in involves, in fact, removing and pruning off neurons that aren't helping or aren't being used. And this is thought, again, uh, an interpretation of this is it, make it, it makes the whole system more efficient. Right. And this that's what happens during non-REM sleep. Correct. All right. So you said birds... Birds and mammals. All right, so birds sleep, but aren't there birds that fly all the way across the ocean? Yeah. They don't sleep, do they? They do, but some species have a very hard sleeping, like most of us, so they've evolved ways to sleep in unusual ways. So birds that have to fly across the ocean have remarkably small periods of sleep that only last like a couple of seconds. And we consider, consider these like the ultimate power naps. On the other hand, there's things like certain uh, species of marine mammals, like dolphins and whales. Uh, they need to be aware of their surroundings both day and night, and they in fact sleep one hemisphere at a time. And just for those of you that are, for those listeners who aren't aware, the brain has two se two hemispheres: the left or the right side. And we're going to have a whole episode coming up on um, the left and right side of the brain. But these are called hemispheres, so hemi half sphere uh, around object. And so yeah. They sleep one hemisphere at a time. My left brain is very excited about that episode. Uh, so the, okay, so the left brain, you're saying the left brain might be asleep, but the right brain controls like the organism? Correct. Yeah. So they can kind of switch on and off, uh, meaning that the side that's awake basically has control. And then uh, once that one side uh, gets enough sleep, then they take over. I wonder if whales have more creative whale songs when their left brain is asleep. Don't make me school you on whale hemisphere differences. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I would love an episode on. I know star nosed moles. We're gonna yeah. have a star nosed mole hemisphere bonus episode. It's gonna that, be like five hours long. Five hours, <laughs> and that will be of interest to two people. <laughs> <laughs> but they will listen to it. Many times. Um, so REM sleep. Now REM sleep has another function. Um, and it seems to be related to social interaction. This is a this is a very controversial theory. Um, but if you deprive rats of REM sleep, they become socially isolated and withdrawn. And some other converging evidence here is that people with autism also get significantly less REM sleep. And one of the main symptoms of autism is having trouble with social understanding and interaction. So how can they control for the fact that they're not becoming socially isolated and withdrawn? Is this they, they want to be left alone so that they need to sleep? <laughs> <laughs> I think they, I, I think I think persons with autism get the same amount of sleep. It's just less REM, right? So yeah, so that's a, that's one interesting piece of information. I mean, like with rats de being deprived of REM sleep, maybe they're just like, leave me alone. I want to I want to go to sleep. But um, <laughs> so yeah, I I don't I'm not familiar with this theory, but it's um, maybe it suggests that people who like REM sleep might somehow be related to our social nature. Yeah, yeah. And I, so I read a very good book. Um, and if you're really into sleep, I recommend it. It's called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Um, and he expresses in this book this theory that our ability to have REM sleep was one of the keys to our success as a species. Wow. That's, that's pretty a bold statement. And it seems like everybody has some kind of pet idea of what makes humans special. <laughs> it is so true. Um, I think, uh, 
Dan Gilbert said in his Stumbling on Happiness book that like every psychologist has to like say, give his theory of, of why, you know, humans are special. <laughs> and here's mine, he says. Anyway, um, he thinks it started with when humans in our, before we were humans, uh, moved from uh, trees to the ground. So our ancestors before, our pre-human ancestors were um, creatures that lived up in the trees. And eventually we moved to the ground and our feet and hands evolved to be better about using our hands and walking. Um, and now REM sleep is very dangerous when you're sleeping in a tree. Uh, your body um, can move and that can make you fall out of the tree. It's dangerous. So when we started living on the ground, it allowed us to have more REM sleep. Yes, right, because they're sleeping on the ground. And since the emotional intelligence that REM sleep affords, so this is tied to the social uh, function of REM sleep, that helped us live in bigger and better groups, larger groups, it led to our flourishing. You know, humans are very social species. We trade knowledge. We have culture. And uh, he says that REM sleep is really key to doing this. So we get larger social groups. And then that has scaling effects on creativity and flourishing. Um, and, you know, that that's what he thinks. Well, here is the sleep theory of human uniqueness. I did not know this. Um, did you know, though, Jim, that you can get um, REM sleep disorders? No. Yeah, there's uh, whole populations of, of folks. You can get REM sleep disorders and non-REM sleep disorders. Uh, and I kind of have armchair diagnosed my father-in-law with a REM sleep disorder. Uh, one of them involves, so when you're in, entering into REM sleep, what happens is the brain has to inhibit all your um, descending motor neuron neuronal connections right so what that means is that you're basically inhibiting motor function and that's important because like jim was just saying um uh when you're in REM sleep you actually don't want to be you're dreaming and you don't want to be acting out your dreams right so mm -hmm. um your your motor control is actually completely inhibited but there's some folks and i think my father-in-law is one of them that don't have this the system is not working correctly so in fact they actually act out their dreams and there's one famous case of a football player who used to be um like throwing passes in his dreams whereas my father-in-law what he does is he for whatever reason he's always hunting animals in his dreams and will like kick my mother-in-law because he thinks that she's a bear or some kind of deer attacking him <laughs> wow yeah well we'll talk more about the relationship in dreams and rem in, in the dream episode but we should just because we haven't said it explicitly that rem sleep is when most dreams happen there are right. a couple of dreams in non-REM, but they're very boring and we tend to forget them. Right. So one thing as well that's important for our listeners to know about is how certain drugs can block REM sleep. So alcohol in particular blocks REM sleep and antidepressants do as well. Now, don't, now don't people drink alcohol to help them fall asleep? Yes. And that's, yeah, because alcohol, what it will actually do is an increasing doses that actually acts as an inhibitory, right? So it, it, it acts on specific circuits in the brain to kind of calm down the nervous system. But that's almost, that's different, right? It's not necessarily engaging healthy, happy sleep. It's just producing massive inhibition of all your arousal circuits. So in fact, drinking a lot of alcohol before you go to sleep actually results in a poor sleep quality throughout the night. I, uh, yeah, I read something about that in the Why We Sleep book, and it said that he's cautiously advising day drinking. No. Because <laughs> <laughs> he thinks sleep is like the most important thing in the world. <laughs> oh, my God, that's hilarious. Well, cannabis um, also is used as a sleep aid, right? There's a lot of folks that use cannabis. Um, they'll, they'll smoke or they'll um, vape right before they go to bed at night or even microdose um, because it helps with sleep. 
Does it, do you know if that interferes with productivity, sleep productivity? Uh, yes. Any drug that does, um, any drug will impact sleep, basically. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's talk uh, nuts and bolts, or, or neurons and neurotransmitters, uh, as we, we might say to a neuroscientist. Now, when we tend to fall asleep, we're tired, right? But what is is there like a brain explanation for what being tired actually means? Yeah. Um, this is tough because, it, yeah, I think we feel sleepy for two overall big reasons, right? The first is, you know, we'll call this sleep pressure. Uh, and what that means is that the longer you're awake, um, you get a buildup of a chemical in your nervous system called adenosine, right? So adenosine kind of uh, gets uh, synthesized and released in increasing quantities the longer we're awake. And uh, this basically det will determine how sleepy you are. So as time progresses, more adenosine released, and then you get sleepier and sleepier. Um, so we have this strong urge to go to sleep when adenosine levels are high. The other thing that makes us want to go to sleep is our innate circadian rhythm. So circa uh, means around, dia means day, circadian rhythm is around a day. We have a part of circuits in our brain uh, that are timekeepers, right? And they are, uh, of these brain regions are very aware of how much time has passed in spite of us being exposed to light. Oh, so you're saying that when we get tired, there are two, there are two reasons we get tired? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at nighttime, adenosine's built up. So um, this kind of can contribute to our, our, our sleepiness and our bed drive. And at the same time, our circadian rhythm is telling us that it's time to sleep, particularly if you uh, wake up and go to sleep at very regular times, right? So for folks that work... Um, shift work or who are very irregular in their sleep patterns, like some of our students, for example, they um, they may have a less of that circadian drive to go to sleep. You call it bed drive? I do call it bed drive. I have a is, strong... Did you make that up or is that a real... No, is that a real I, thing, bed drive? That's me. I made that up. <laughs> I, have a, I have a... As we discussed in previous... I have a strong bed drive. <laughs> yeah. Okay. How do we know that there are two different mechanisms? Like, it seems like you get the sleep, you know, you get sleepy at the same time. How do we know there are two? Well, if you've ever stayed up all night, and uh, I have to admit that I haven't pulled that many all-nighters, but um, the ones that I have, you might notice that you feel very tired for most of the night, particularly right after that period that you would normally fall asleep. Like you have this incredible sense of sleepiness. Uh, but then back in the morning, uh, you get this sort of boost of energy. Right, when the sun comes up. Yeah, so the sleep pressure is still very high, right? So your adenosine is still um, built up. But your circadian rhythm is kind of giving you that cue um, and that energy to be more awake. So you can imagine lots of different um, systems are sort of saying, okay, time to make uh, cortisol, time to make uh, the acids in your stomach mm. so you're ready to digest breakfast. Um, so unless you're staying up all night, these two mechanisms are usually in sync. Oh, wow. And what are they, physiologically speaking, what are they? Well, uh, the brain has a number of biological clocks, but the main one is called, ready for this, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN. Supra uh, means above, chiasm, because it's right above uh, the area of our brain known as the optic chiasm, uh, which is right underneath our eyeballs, and nucleus meaning a group of tiny little um, clusters of cells grouped together. So this SCN, or suprachiasmatic nucleus, is tiny. It has about 
20,000 brain cells, but it controls um, the, the majority of our circadian circuits, right? So it's called the pacemaker of the brain because it mm. goes on to tell other circuits to do certain things. Now, 20,000 neurons might sound like a lot of neurons, more than an engineer might know what to do with, but um, that's actually very small for a brain area, isn't it? Oh, for sure. It, yes. It's, I mean, when you think about the hippocampus, like I'm not, I should know this, but the hippocampus, I'm going to say is the order of a hundred times more than 20,000. It's, it's huge um, versus the SCN. Yes. is one of the smaller brain regions, but does a lot. Size doesn't so, matter. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, evolutionarily old, I guess. Yes, it is. Yep. Um, many animals have a circadian rhythm, so that suggests to us it's probably quite old. Simpler organisms with smaller brains need it too, so it makes sense that it might be very small and efficient. Okay, so that's our, you know, it's one of the biological clocks, not the same one that makes people want babies, but the 20, mm. it's a 24-hour cycle clock. Well, it's not quite 24 hours. It's in fact 24 hours in around 15 minutes, but what uh, trains our, our circadian or biological clock is sunlight, which acts as a, it's called a Zeitgeber or timekeeper um, from the German. I think uh, time is uh, Zeit is time and Geber means giver, right? So um, our, our, we have these tiny little cells in the back of our eyes that pay attention to how much sunlight uh, hits the eye. And these cells um, form the beginning of a pathway that that in the first part of the brain that it hits is that SCN. So the the exposure to light kind of trains our biological clock. Okay, so you, 24 hours and 15 minutes. So our biological clock is out of sync with the rotation of the Earth. Yes. <laughs> and we really don't know why. Um, we know this because um, there's like old studies that have been done where, believe it or not, they've had people spend uh, days in a cave with no access to life. Life. <laughs> no access to light. <laughs> they eat nothing but salt. <laughs> yeah. And no way to know what time it is. They've done like bunker experiments too where they've mm. had humans stay underground in these bunkers with no, um, no sunlight. Um, and what happens is that they, they track their natural uh, biological clock without any access to light. And they, what they found is it's a little bit longer than one day. So it's really interesting. Think about that. Without access to the sun our body will still measure out um, a periods of activity and inactivity. So it'll get out of sync, like mm -hmm. over the course of time, they'll mm -hmm. be completely out of sync with the outside world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And oh um, part of the reason, in interestingly, that people in the modern world tend to be more sleep deprived uh, is because the artificial light that we tend to be exposed to will trick our circadian clock into thinking that it's daylight for longer than it is. And this is p potentially, they think, one of the bases of seasonal affective disorder. Have you heard about that? Yeah, I thought that was just like, I thought that was, is that artificial light or is that just, I thought it was just winter. Well, think about it. So what happens is that um, 
people who have seasonal affective disorder tend to get depressed only in the winter months, right? And the symptoms of seasonal affective disorder are you have an intense craving for high carbohydrate foods. So foods like donuts and bagels and muffins. Uh, you're, you have sluggishness. Uh, you feel very lethargic. Uh, you don't want to move around a lot and you're super, super tired. Now think about our ancestors that lived without artificial light. During the winter months, we were not meant to be as productive and active as we are in modern 2020. Um, what, what that meant was that we were to save our energy, right? So we wouldn't have had even like, think about like, I don't know, the first existence of candles. I don't mm-hmm. know when that would have been, but uh, you're prolonging the daylight, right? So our ancestors would have, whenever it got dark in the winter, 4 p.m., gone to bed. And there's some evidence that, in fact, they had two nights. It's really wild. They went to bed at 4 p.m. and then got up again at 2 o'clock in the morning and had something to eat and then went back to sleep. Um, but what's ha- what they, th- you know, scientists, is all conjecture. What they think is that people who have seasonal affective disorder, it's like they they haven't evolved to adapt to these uh, falsely extended daytimes. So they're wanting to eat a lot of food, kind of put fat on like, like a bear, right? And hibernate. And, um, the fact that their, their mood is affected is probably because we're forced, they're being forced, um, to engage or have energy output when their body wants to go to sleep. So that would suggest that their, that seasonal affective disorder is not getting enough sleep. It's as simple as that. Potentially, but also, um, it's that uh, their their circuits aren't being they're not plastic, right? So they're not adapting to um, the artificial light, right? So one of the treatments for seasonal affective disorder is um, bright light therapy. So they sit in front of this lamp that puts out like th- thousands of lux or light wave energy, uh, and they mm. stare at it for like fifteen minutes in the morning, um, I think. And it it seems to have better outcomes. So they're they're more likely to be less depressed, and they their carbohydrate cravings are reduced. So somehow they have to um, kind of rejig those circuits. So it's mm-hmm. not necessarily sleep; it's that their brain isn't adapting to um, the artificial light. I don't know. Now, now it's now that it's not just any light, though, right? It like a fluorescent light won't do it. It's it's isn't it the blue? Yeah. Spe- part of the spectrum particularly? Yeah, that's right. It's the shorter wavelengths. And this is also why they recommend that you don't look at bright screens right before bed. Um, so the light energy that's given out by these bright light therapies and then um, in the evening, it tends to be shorter wavelengths as opposed to daytime light. That's the daytime ambient light is longer wavelengths that are more, um, they would be uh, reddish or orangish uh, in coloration. And so uh, you can imagine that looking at your bright Kindle or your iPad uh, right before bed actually puts out that energy and tricks your brain into thinking it's still daytime. And that's why mm-hmm. there's lots of evidence that staring at these screens right before bed um, will be disruptive. It's, it's delaying the production of melatonin, uh, which is one of the hormones that's involved in um, getting us to sleep. Right. So you're screwing up your circadian rhythm by looking at like a laptop or a lap, like a laptop or a tablet or a, your mm-hmm. phone mm-hmm. because of the blue light. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are apps and things that allow you to dim it. And there are settings, I think, on the iPhone that like reduce the amount of blue light that yeah. comes out. 
yeah. at a certain time of day. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also read that if you hold your phone like two feet away from your face, it reduces it a lot. That's right. Um, but they do recommend if you're going to read like at night, use like a These printed apps. book or an e-screen, like a Kindle or something, because uh, there's less blue light there. Yeah. And sleep, they... Like this is contributing to sleep deprivation. And that's this is a very big problem, right? We we are like modern industrial society is quite sleep deprived, and yeah. uh, it's dangerous, right? Yes, we are a highly sleep deprived um, society. How many hours sleep did you get last night, Jim? Uh, let's see, I slept from about ten to four. So t- last night, I did not get a good night. I did ten to four is eight. No, no wait, ten. Oh, God, to four. I thought you said six. Okay, six hours. That is, wow. Six hours, yeah. What happened? It was not a great great night. I just woke up at four and couldn't sleep. It happens sometimes. Boo. Um, So I I joke that I'm like very, I'm like a Swiss clock. I I get, (laughs) on average, like I'm pretty good at getting about eight hours of sleep every night. It's the key to my success. Um, But... (laughs) (laughs) But yes, the average uh, human, I think the now is about six and a half hours of sleep um, in modern world, right? Um, and this is really important because there's correlational data that shows um, it's almost like an inverted U-shaped curve. Uh, people who sleep like four to six hours a night regularly um, mm. it's, is associated with higher rates of mortality, as are people who sleep like nine to 10 hours. So sleeping a lot or very little isn't good for your health. And again, I want to stress that this is correlational. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that like, yeah, that there's a causal relationship here. There may be something else going on, right? So for people who are sleeping nine, 10 hours, maybe they're sick. Right. Um, but it's, well, it's, it's, people also differ a lot in how much they need. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I don't, I, I don't think there's that much variability. I think there, there are very rare humans that can, that only need five hours sleep. Very rare. Um, I think most people need between seven, eight, nine hours of sleep. I but don't if think somebody that like sleeps 10 hours. It, should they be getting themselves up earlier? Like forcing themselves to wake up non-naturally? Like I, 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 I know that I know it's dangerous to say that like ah some people only need three hours of sleep and those people are so rare that it's yeah we shouldn't even like mention it but um it seems like some people just like naturally um sleep more right sure I yeah I wouldn't say it's totally normally distributed it probably has yeah, right. some skewness okay. but one right. thing too is that driving right there's some research that shows it's um more problematic than alcohol-impaired driving. Wow. Mm -hmm. So if you're sleepy, don't drive. And if you're driving, don't be sleepy. (laughs) 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 Okay, let's let's talk about like the big, the big, the enemy of sleep that everybody knows is caffeine, right? So people Mm -hmm. will deliberately fight sleep and sleepiness with caffeine. Uh, But do we know how caffeine works? Sure. Yes, we do. Yay. Um, We don't know how alcohol works, but we don't know how caffeine works. Uh, Remember I was talking about adenosine earlier, the um, chemical that kind of builds up throughout the day and contributes to our Mm -hmm. sleepiness? Well, alcohol, uh, alcohol, caffeine blocks adenosine receptors. So, um, and it takes roughly about 30 to 60 minutes to get to peak in your blood. So I used to joke to my students, if you're coming to an 830 class, get up around 630, drink some caffeine, go back to sleep, and then you'll have like optimum um, caffeinated levels for your 830 class. So anyway, so although your sleep pressure (laughs) is building up, you don't experience it as sleepiness because those... um, 
adenosine receptors are actually blocked or occupied by caffeine. So the buildup is still there. And that's why when caffeine wears off, you tend to crash. Um, and all that adenosine can suddenly be taken in by the receptors and you can get tired very, very quickly. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about age and sleep, which hits home because I used to be um, like you sleeping, but lately I've had like, <laughs> my sleep has been a little bit disruptive. But now older people need need less sleep, right? Well, no, that, that's actually a myth. It's true that they do get less sleep, but it's not true that they need less sleep. It seems to be that older adults have trouble getting to sleep. Uh, they, you might have heard that some of them, um, I know my parents, like they, they may actually try to go to bed and they have a hard time falling asleep and they wake up very early um, and they will often nap throughout the day. Oh, no, oh, geez. Mm, yes, it's particularly bad for non-REM sleep. So when a person gets to their mid to late 40s, um, age tends to strip them from about 70% of the deep sleep that they were enjoying as a teenager. And we all know teenagers are like cats. They some tend to sleep, um, they'll, they'll stay up late, but sleep well into the afternoon. Um, and you can lose up to about 90% of your deep sleep when you're 70 years old. And they think um, this might be contributing to age-related memory declines. So another fascinating fact is scientists have recently discovered something called the glymphatic system. Have you heard about that, Jim? No. Have you heard about the lymphatic system? Like your lymph well, nodes? No, I've heard of lymph nodes, but yeah, that's, yeah. I, didn't know, I didn't know there was a whole system. Yes, there's a lymphatic system and it drains, it's like linked to the immune system. So it's part of like um, reducing waste uh, from the body. So the glymphatic system is the connections from glial cells. So that's where the G comes from, the glymph. Um, so glial cells are one of the um, types of brain cells, right? So we have neurons and then we have glial cells. Neurons do most of the cell communication. Glial cells provide a more supportive role to the brain, uh, but also now scientists think that they also communicate, but that's a whole other episode. Um, but glial cells, they, they're, um, the extensions, their little end feet tend to be uh, connected to the bloodstream and also to neurons. And now they say they're also linked to the, the lymphatic system. And what their main role or the role of the lymphatic system is, is it takes like misfolded, misshapen proteins, like any kind of like junk or debris of the brain, and mm -hmm. it removes it. And the important thing for why we're talking about this today is the glymphatic system tends to be most active during the night. So we think um, that, for example, when you think about things like dementias, like Alzheimer's disease, uh, it's characterized by excess buildup of the, in the brain of these misshapen, misfolded proteins. So we think there may be something about how the glymphatic system isn't working properly in folks that might develop Alzheimer's disease and might be related to age-related decline uh, in memory um, as people are getting older. So, uh, so, so like the night, like sleep, and especially non-REM sleep is like garbage day. Mm -hmm. And if you're missing it, all mm -hmm. that there's a buildup, that's that's disturbing. Is there anything we could do about it? Well, there are some therapies where you can stimulate the brain and it causes these benefits of increased non-REM sleep. But this involves brain stimulation when you sleep. 
And it's obviously not ready for prime time. I don't recommend anybody um, even searching online for these kinds of things and trying to get them in your home environment. Um, not safe folks, not uh, regulated by um, the FDA or any of these other. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, let, no, let's have a general no shocking your own brain uh, recommendation for mining yeah. the brain does not support no. Shocking the brain. No. And don't go buying anything <laughs> that claims to do that, right? There's no commercial products that can do this um, as of yet. But who knows? I mean, there's there's scientists that are examining. There, there is this very clear relationship between sleep and dementia and, and forgetfulness and memory loss. So I wouldn't be surprised to see if in the future we did have something available or on market that would help um, stave this off because as you are aware and as I'm sure my li the listeners are aware um, dementias are a huge burden on uh, the healthcare system right and now we've been talking about sleep as though it's happening at night but um, not everybody sleeps at exactly the same time right and some people are morning people some people are night people so I think it's important like to get the right amount of sleep but when isn't quite isn't necessarily as important that's right it's 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 Definitely just more about when you can get those eight hours, right? It doesn't have necessarily be between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. And if you are interested in this topic, we have a whole upper other episode on that, which is episode 20. The great episode 20. The great episode 20. But if you are trying to sleep, we'd just like to note that listening to podcasts involves no blue light in your eyeballs. <laughs> that is true. We should see if we can get clinical trials for minding the brain as a sleep aid. Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by Carleton University's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and made possible in part by Non-REM Sleep, helping our listeners retain the knowledge they get from this podcast by reinforcing semantic memory. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice, as it will help make our podcast more visible to potential listeners. Music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.